The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 38. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is Seat tied. Altera zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. My guest today is Russ Prechtel, call sign Cranky. He's a former Viper test pilot. He's seen and done a few things up on the Afterburn Podcast website and theafterburnpodcast.com. I put up a link to one of his videos where he put the F-16 into an unrecoverable spin. So check that out. He's flown the B-17, the MiG-21, probably three dozen aircraft. Quite an impressive resume. Enjoyed talking with him today, and I think you'll enjoy hearing some of his stories. Before we do, just a few admin notes. As always, I'd like to thank all my Patreon supporters, as well as everyone who's just taking the time to swing over to iTunes and drop a rating or review. That helps the podcast out. Those who heard me talk about Patreon, not really sure what it's about. It's a way to support the podcast. This is just a short clip of a There I Was story from Cranky. This is his There I Was story. And it lives up on patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. Each guest typically just leaves a five to 15 minute There I Was story. And this is just a snippet from Cranky's. I was over Egyptian airspace and the tanker said, okay, I'm out of here. Good luck. And, um, and so this, this F-16 did not have GPS. It was Block 40, but an Egyptian Block 40 at the time didn't have GPS. So I had my INS, which now after four and a half hours had drifted quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so I didn't exactly know where I was. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was interesting. So first thing, you know, fighter pilot, shiny objects. And I looked down and go, ah, the Great Pyramids. So, so what else do you do when you're over the Great Pyramids? You turn inverted and you look at it from being inverted, right? That's, that's what you do. So again, that's a segment from There I Was, where most participants just leave a short story that stands alone, something they, they tell in the bar. And if you're looking to support the podcast and are looking for more content, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Cranky. Sir, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to have you on. Quite a distinguished career. Looking forward to hearing about it. I always ask my guests to kind of give the 60 to 90 second elevator pitch of where they started and what they're doing today. And then we'll dig into your career from there. Great. Thanks for having me on, Rain. I'm uh, Russ Prechtel, call signs Cranky. 
I went to pilot training uh, out of college, Air Force ROTC. I uh, went to pilot training at Willie. Had a wonderful time there. Got my first choice, F-16s out of, out of Willie. Went through uh, leading pilot training at Holloman, as we did back then. And then off to McDill for RTU, which was six months at the time. Got my first choice out of there to Torrejon. I wanted to go to Torrejon because I heard they did a lot of flying and I would get to see all of Europe and that both those were true. And I went to, went to Torremon and their primary mission uh, was nuclear strike, secondary of conventional air to ground and tertiary of air to air. So lots of uh, diverse uh, missions for the multi-role F-16, but uh, getting certified for nuclear strike was, was certainly um, very sobering duty to have to sit alert and be ready to jump in the airplane and ready to go within 15 minutes when you're sitting alert. And other than that, we had some amazing times. I, I spent eight months in Insulik, a couple months in Aviano, a couple months back in the States for flags, red flag, green flag, that type of thing. And a lot of flying all over the place, across countries through Europe, uh, flying around Spain. It was, it was uh, really a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. And I know... Uh, joking about it, the fact that you know, Willie McDill and then Tora Hone quite different than my Mississippi, South Georgia, South Carolina. So all the, all the good ones, it seems like they've closed down. Yeah. So, uh, one good thing about those other basins is that you would actually get to flying weather and get some actual weather experience. Whereas at Willie, if we never had any weather and those of us who came from Willie had no IMC experience, um, which is interesting because when I, we showed up at our, our, our first base, Torahone, we, we weren't exactly welcome for a, a variety of reasons. One was no weather experience, of course. The other one was we had just killed two lieutenants through G-Lock before, before I showed up. And about the Viper and how quickly it can put, put some Gs on you. And, and, and I learned that firsthand, actually. So I had a G-Lock while I was there, but. Jeez. They were very careful with us, cautious with us. Um, they even sent, sent all the centrifuge in uh, Amsterdam to uh, really work on our G-tolerance. Uh, but uh, because two lieutenants had been killed, they were not so happy about having lieutenants. And as Hilt said, they're a bunch of old Vietnam fighter pilots. So, <laughs> you know, they weren't all fluffy and uh, uh, politically correct about it either. <laughs> yeah, I can it was al along the lines of uh, <laughs> say hello, the new guy. You know how that yeah, goes. Yeah, I can only yeah. imagine that. You know, G Lock. I don't know how many guys have been killed in the Viper, but I think the Taiwanese might have had the last one two or three years ago out at Luke with the G Lock. Mm -hmm. Now having a GCAS Auto Ground Collision Avoidance System, yep. I had a buddy saved by it. There's been several saves of it. I got, that's one of the videos I need to throw up um, on YouTube because yeah. the unclassed version of the, I think it's a Tucson B Corps student where he's asleep, supersonic, pointed at the ground. He should have been a smoking hole in the ground, but having that technology saved his life. So it's really, I mean, it's some great tech that's incorporated into the Viper. And a lot of the foreign military sales, FMS countries have had that for quite some time, but it's taken till 2015, I think, for most of the U.S. inventory to have that. It's amazing how long that stuff takes. I actually tested it in the Viper in the 90s at Edwards. Really? Uh, and, and it's a great, it's great capability. And I found myself, there I was, yeah. uh, you know, doing, I think it was a 2v1 ACT, a Torahone as a lieutenant. And, and you know, you know how it goes, you get to the merge and you don't see the guy. 
And I can't remember if we had GCI helping us or what, but at the, at the last moment I see him down there. And of course, instinct catches in and I'm like, you know, yeah. I'm on him. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> time uh, to kill. <laughs> and the hug video tells the rest of the story. Uh, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't strain like you're supposed to. And uh, I just put eight plus G's on the airplane and in the hundred video, you see it, you see the air, you see me saying, I got him, and I'm going into my eight plus G, uh, you know, slice back. And, uh, <laughs> then the G's go back to like one and the airplane's just sitting there, you know, like this. And, uh, and then I wake up and I re-engage and go after the guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I had no recollection, right? I had no recollection of any of that. Uh, we get back, we're watching the HUD video and my flight commander was my flight lead that day. And he's like, what the hell's this? You lost consciousness. Do you remember this? I'm like, no, I don't. So, so now, you know, the, the flashing alarm bells and the squadron commander and OPSO were like, uh oh, yeah. Wow. This is, this is bad. Cause we almost lost this guy too. And fortunately I was, you know, up 15, 20,000 feet. So I had time to time to wake up and get my act together before, you know, anything bad happened. Yeah, it, so the you know, auto G cast, it's a good capability. It, it's amazing how long it takes to get out to all the airplanes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would have say if so many lives, have we had it sooner yeah. having it is awesome, but there's a lot there to like, just dig through one, like the debrief, the fact that it's so important in the fighter pilot world is so important in any world, really, you can make that justification. But had you know, I had that debrief, wouldn't have caught it, and you might have gone out there the next day and done the exact same thing with right. a different outcome. And I can remember, I think I was number two in a four ship night um, night ride, and watching everyone's HUD tapes. You see number four in his HUD tape, who is pointing at the ground, pointed at the sky, pointed at the ground, completely disoriented, and had no idea until we did the debrief. Uh, just watching his tape, yep. it was clear that he was spatially disoriented and had no idea. Fortunately, he was in the mid-teens, and the outcome didn't end tragically, but it can just go sideways so fast. Absolutely. Gosh. Yeah. The uh, And now, you know, you mentioned the old Vietnam fighter pilots of your day. I think with the new G-suit, the A-tags, it's supposed to give you an extra G, G and a half of protection. Mm-hmm. The big concern, at least especially when I was going through the B course, was doing a counter hob, so counter high off boresight maneuver. So you're fighting someone who has an aim nine X equivalent, meaning they can shoot you across the circle for those who are listening to understand, but you have to min range that as fast as you can, which requires a basically a split S type maneuver, which is just high G, you know, mill power or AB for part of the maneuver. Um, like you can put yourself to sleep really quickly. And the fear was that, Guys and gals were just going to be relying upon the ATACs. That that fear is still there. I had four G suit blowouts in the demo profile, right? So slightly different, but it's very high G intensive, which would you know comparable to that counter Hobbs maneuver. So pointing at the ground, pulling nine G's, not where you want to be when you have a G suit explode or you're not on your G string. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And stuff happens fast, as you know. High speeds, high G's. Uh, dynamic situations. Uh, what one of the things that's kind of fun is uh, all the time we spend in insulin. Sometimes we do these exercises, and, and uh, I think Delts did a little good job of explaining it last week. Uh, you know, we would work our way up. We'd be doing a conventional engagement against against the adversary, and, and then things would escalate uh, to to the nuclear exchange. 
And so what that what that ends up looking like is a bunch of F-16s loaded with nuclear weapons. And, and then the inspectors come in and they inspect. Did you load your nuclear weapon correctly, right? You know, they look the paperwork, they look the bomb, all that stuff. So we're we're out there doing our exercise and uh and this uh was I don't know, two, three weeks after the Libyan bombing in nineteen eighty six. Okay. So just to put you we were we were um working on adversaries like Libya and in the middle of the night in Turkey, a couple of Libyans jumped the fence into our nuclear exercise and got within <laughs> feet of real nuclear weapons. Uh, yeah, I imagine that went over really well. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so obviously security was a little lax. Um, that did, uh, that did uh, stop the exercise uh, at that point, obviously, because they had bigger, bigger problems to deal with. But that, that was kind of memorable that we had, that we had Libyans jumping our fence during that, during that exercise. That's crazy. And I mean, now I just think of, uh, I've flown some places that have nuclear weapons, but even flying over them is prohibited. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, there's a lot of security. We've had a few, uh, faux pas in the air force. I think over the last decade or so with, with nuclear weapons and maybe flying them to places they weren't intended to go to, or they thought they were training munitions, but there's a lot of detail that goes into it. You can attest to it sitting that nuclear mission. So I would like to just talk about that a little bit. What was kind of the mentality back then? What was your thought process? Because I imagine it had to be a pretty high stress, just getting certified. And then when it's actually time and you're sitting alert, knowing the power that you have or the responsibility you have that had a way on you a little bit, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was very sobering uh, reality to be sitting alert and knowing that, that it, if the alarm goes off that you're, you're going and they would, they would scramble us. Uh, if I remember correctly, if we were there for a 10 day pad tour, as we called it, uh, we get scrambled at least two times, maybe three. And, um, they were always exercised, right? We never went to war, but you never knew that at the time. And so when that flaxen goes off, you got to scramble out to your jet, get in it, get started up as soon as you can. Um, and, um, and they'd write re- re- ready for the message and, uh, they'd read you the message and decode it. And, you know, you're, you're just hoping that it says exercise and not actual. And, yeah. um, and the real reality is if I, I thought about it, if I, if I was actually flying that, flying that black line or mission that doing it for real, that, you know, wasn't just me, it was the whole world was erupting into a, a global war. And the only way it justifies, and they were coming to attack my family my loved ones back home and I was defending the United States of America. And that's, that's what you do. Uh, but it was, um, it was nonetheless very sobering and knowing just how close, uh, you'd be to your own detonation and other detonations like the out there. Um, you know, it was, it was like I said, very sobering. Uh, it, it, it's always funny because I'd be out there one day in an exercise at my tab B and airplanes to the tab B and talk to the crew chief while we're waiting to get started. And, we talked about the mission and he goes, yeah, if you guys all launch on this thing for real, I'm just going to this tab B and closing the doors. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said something along the lines of sun. There's probably already a very large missile on its way in here and that's not going to help you at all. Right. <laughs> I mean, the Russians or the Soviets, you know, they, they knew where 
nuclear was being launched from. Not a good, okay. sp- yeah. This, right. No one wins in that scenario. That's for sure. If the Libyans knew where we were, I'm pretty sure the Soviets <laughs> did too. Touche, touche. Yeah. Oh well, that sounds like. I mean, obviously that assignment, the weight that it carried with, if you had to actually go out there and do the mission, wasn't a lot of fun. But it, it sounds like the assignment in itself, just living in in Europe, was right. a pretty good time. Right. Um, someone had to do it, you know. So thanks for thanks for your service there. Yeah, we we had. So some really good times and he'll, he'll cover the one B one B many in the 50 mile circle after, after doing simulated play, that was a lot of fun. You can get away with that today and things like that were fun. But one of the most memorable things we did was, uh, we did a, a dive in your stream. So our, our wing, the 401st tactical fighter wing and our squadrons were B-17s in world war two. And they were based at an airfield in the UK called Dean Thorpe. Okay. And so partway through my tour, we, uh, we went there and visited and it was, it was a really great mission. We, we really went back into the history. We even named our airplanes after B-17s from the war. And the, the folks in the town of Deanthorpe were, were wonderful hosts. They took us around the old closed air base and, um, BBC interviewed us. It was really a really nice time. It was, it was the first part of our, our you know, just a great cross country weekend. We went to. I think we landed at either Alcumbury or Milden Hall and we went to Ramstein after that and another base. So those types of cross country were just phenomenal. You know, I look back on that now and it's like, wow, how lucky I was to be able to just fly around all these countries in an F-16, no less. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it's different today. Just the uh, the dog fighting, you know, in Europe and being able to just jump and go fight anyone yeah. in the airspace, like, just doesn't happen that way anymore. It would be pretty amazing. Yeah, you had to be careful because you get you get jumped just being on the cross country and you have a three G travel pod. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> Clubbing baby seals out there, that's what that becomes. Yeah. Right. Uh, so after Torhone, you go to Luke and now you're mm-hmm. you're teaching guys and gals how to fly the F sixteen. What was your Luke assignment like? Uh it was uh, it was good. You know, we had some we had some interesting times. Um you know, getting really good at uh, teaching the basics to dogfighting and, and dropping bombs to new pilots. And, and I found myself, I got much better at the basics doing it. Um, I, I did enjoy that aspect of it. I enjoyed helping turn out new fighter pilots. Um, and some of which I, I still know and work with. Um, as a matter of fact, um, we had, uh, I taught academics. I created car- courseware. That was, that was kind of interesting. Getting to run off to Nellis to do red flags every now and then was a lot of fun. Some memorable DACT with Tomcats in Miramar on a Wednesday night. Uh, <laughs> good times there. So some, some really good opportunities, uh, but got really good at, at um, doing, doing the, hey, common student error. This is what you can do wrong in this sortie. Go out and do it. Come yeah. back and show them and go. So he did that common error. So try not to do that one again. Uh, but, but it was, it was good. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. What was it like flying a, fighting a Tomcat? I think that'd be a lot of fun to do. <laughs> well, you know, they, they got a big old radar missile that shoots you from a long ways yeah. away. So, uh, we said, okay, they'll take the Fox one shots, but we'll continue to merge for fun. Yeah. And of course it, it was fun. You know, that Tomcats aren't very maneuverable against the Viper. Um, you know, fought at fours to kind of the same thing, you know, previous generation and it turned very well. Yeah. That's what, so I fought, um, 
some F-35s with my buddy. So it was two ship of Vipers, two ship F-35s. We split the airspace and we fight just doing close stuff, right? I mean, it's the same deal. It's like the F-35, it, it sees you a long way away. It right. kills you. But, you know, if you go fight close in, it was like clubbing a baby seal. But at the end of it, um, I just kind of followed trail on him. We go rejoin my wingman who's completely unaware that we're there. So he's like, and that's the point of it. And so like, touche, touche, <laughs> you know, that's funny. Um, but test pilot school comes after Luke. Yep. So did you always want to be a test pilot or was that just kind of something after flying the Viper for a few years, you said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to apply and try to go be a test pilot. Yeah. And you know, like a lot of kids, my age, uh, watched, uh, Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, thought it'd be great to, you know, go fly in space. Uh, we thought we would be having a really big space program. Um, so it was that type of thing. So it seemed like being a, being a pilot, being a test pilot would be a way to get there. Uh, so that's, that's what guided me initially. Um, but, uh, I went through the test pilot school at Edwards. Um, and it, it was, a, it was a hard year as you probably heard from other people. It's, yeah. it's a, a lot of, uh, a lot of academics, report writing. Uh, the flying of course was amazing. I, I got to fly, um, 34 different planes, including the B-17 and the, um, MiG-21. Okay. And those, those were phenomenal to be able to fly those. And, um, uh, after going through the school, I, uh, got my, my choice to stay at Edwards and went down the street to the F-16 combined test force and, uh, tested F-16s for three years. And, and that was amazing. That was just phenomenal to be able to fly. Uh, you know, like a block 50 arm targeting system test mission in the morning and then do some, uh, proficiency BFM in a small tail a model in the afternoon. Those, those airplanes, all of them were just amazing, but every, everything in between weapons, uh, software, uh, propulsion, everything, you know? So I, I did get to do just about everything while I was there, which was really enjoyable. Yeah. It sounds like it. I'm curious as a pilot. So I know everyone goes through test pilot school. They fly a myriad of aircraft, but when it comes to like flying like a MiG-21, how much prep goes into it? Like, do you know at the, Hey, at the end of the week, I'm going to fly a MiG-21. Here's the things to start it. Don't kill me and how to land it. Like how much, you know, cause there's no simulators. So yeah. what, what is that? What does that cycle look like? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great question, Rain. Um, so all of test pilot school is, is kind of, uh, it, the curriculum is all architected to force you to prioritize. Okay. And nothing's more important than being ready to fly that airplane. So you don't do something, uh, inadvisable as they say. <laughs> and so they, they loaded us up with all sorts of reports to write and academics to study in addition to getting ready for your flight. So you always had to know how to prioritize and flying was, was obviously the priority. And so when you find you're going to fly this plane tomorrow sometimes or two days from now you get out you get out the flight manual and you go through it and you you study the important stuff um takeoff speed landing speed stall speed best glide speed you know critical action procedures for um you know that airplane you know what do you do if you lose an engine on takeoff type thing um similar to the viper right um the one similarity with all these airplanes is that, you know, once you get it out of the chocks, everything's really cool. But, you know, a lot of times getting these airplanes out of the chocks, uh, you know, just imagine, uh, you know, did you fly the analog Flickus F-16? No, no, I've only had yeah, buddies. I've heard oh. the stories, you know, I'm used to this, the Flickus bit and 
Yes, the digital flickers is, is very nice, but the analog flickers in the block 10s and block 15s was, uh, it was some work, but I tell you, that was nothing compared to General Dynamics' previous airplane, the F-111. Absolutely that thing. And, and doing the flight control check was that was, you know, you're holding one arm back here on some switch and you're moving the stick with the, with your right hand. It made the F-16A model flickers look, look uh, easy by comparison. <laughs> but, you know, that airplane, that airplane was, was tough to get out of the chocks. And, and a lot of them were because you've never flown them before. It's your first time. But then you get up and away and flying it, and it's it's uh, oh, it's very enjoyable, uh, with a couple exceptions. A couple yeah. exceptions, some really bad flying airplanes. That you know, what we would do is we'd be we'd be tasked to evaluate each airplane for its mission. How well does it do its mission? And so you'd write a report based on that. And so I, I most of them were amazing, amazing airplanes do their mission really well, and then there's always some exceptions. Yeah, no doubt. Um, was there like a, you know, is there a MiG-21 SME or a subject matter expert for those again listening that would, if you're trying to get that plane out of the chalks, B-17 probably a little bit different. I imagine you might have a examiner or something like that who's rated on this B-17 to help there a little bit. But if you're sitting in a single engine plane or single seat cockpit, is there someone there that can help you through that process? Or if you're flying around as a supervisor flying up in the tower do they have the checklist to back you up to walk you through that plane yeah there's always an instructor who's knowledgeable on on that plane uh for the make 21 um they sat in the cockpit after reading the manual i sat in the cockpit and the instructor just sat there on the ladder and we went through everything for a while um it was a it was a soviet mig so it still had cyrillic on all the controls and a couple key ones like fuel pump had an english label on them taped over it uh so he, he talked me through it and actually that was two seater so he hopped in the back and and uh we did that uh out of pax river that one we were on a field trip so that was uh that was memorable and it flew just the way they told us it would i can't imagine why we would know that ahead of time but <laughs> strange strange how that happens now what so you mentioned obviously that you got some favorites and not so not so favorite aircraft going through Going through and flying 34 airplanes in test pilot school, I imagine, had to be a lot of fun, a lot of stress, as you mentioned. But what was, like, the standout, like, best airplane you flew going through TPS? The best flying airplane out, out of all those was was the FAA-18. Okay. Uh, Canadians came down for about a week with their F-18, F-5, um, uh, T-33 air, aircraft, and we got to fly them all. And F-18 was, was just an absolute dream. It, it flies, its flying qualities are, are superior. And this is an old F-18B model, not, not the Super Hornet or Growler, but the kind of lightweight analog to the F-16. And it flew about as nicely as the F-16 flew. Um, so that was, that, was a, that was a real fun airplane to fly. Uh, that's awesome. Can you speak to the Vista at all? I'm not very smart, but was that around when you were going through TPS? It was, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's so one unique airplane that was highly modified. Uh, Vista stands for variable stability, and and you can you can dial it up to to uh, fly any way you like, and and so also, uh, Calsfan was the company who also had a T thirty three same capability. So, in test pilot school, I got to fly the T thirty three, and and so you could change the gains of the flight control system. So we could handle like a fighter or a, a cargo plane. And just by the flip, flick of a switch, you could completely change the control laws 
you know, just imagine a lot more stick force, uh, you know, for example, helps it fly like a, like a cargo plane. It's, it's not hard to do. Like I got a Tesla, I just hit a couple buttons and it does the same thing. It goes from sports car to, to you know, Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. I guess for me thinking about it, you know, something different sitting on the ground or something attached to the ground when you change how it performs versus, you know, an F-16 that looks a little bit different and you uh, change up the flight control logic. It's, it's really valuable for, for uh, training pilots on how different airplanes fly and doing research on, on those airplanes. Before it became uh, the full-up variable stability airplane, it was also the uh, multi-axis thrust vectoring F-16, MATB. Okay. And uh, so it had paddles that went into the uh, exhaust nozzle to help vector the thrust. And that was, again, a one-off research project, but it was there when I was there. Uh, and so I chased, I chased the MATB F-16 through a lot of missions. And it does a lot of really tight turns like the F-22 does today in its air show. So that was neat, but it, you know, probably added too much weight and complexity and cost for it to be something that they would production on. So it didn't go anywhere. And they, they took the MATV off the airplane. And to this day, I think they still fly that same airplane as the Vista. I guess the genesis of that or the thought process behind it was, was it do thrust vectoring on the F-16 or is it to help develop and do thrust vectoring on the, the Raptor? And I think it was more for the F-16. Okay. I think it was a research project specifically for the F-16. I imagine I of it. thrust vectoring, you probably could paint yourself into a corner on the Viper, I'd imagine. You know, the Raptor is just like magic to me. Yeah. yeah. Just... I, you know, what we learned uh, way back in our, our old ACMI exchanges, we go to like Dutchie Momano or Nellis and, you know, many of the many engagements. We, we learned pretty early on that if you, you turn more than 30 degrees and try to tie it up with somebody, you're going to die. Somebody that you're not watching from outside the turn circle is just going to nail you yeah. with the missile and you won't even know. And so yeah. we, we would, we would die. We would learn that in these exercises. And the next day we go out there and go, I'm turning 30 degrees, taking a shot and I'm blowing through in full AB, you know, <laughs> some yeah. things never change, right? Yeah, no, it's hundred percent valid. You know, we get yeah. so focused on the core, which you gotta have those, you know, the part task trainers build a, the monkey skills there, left hand, right hand to go out there and well, fight. But it's fun to dog fight. Everybody knows that. Yeah. So, you know, we still, we still wrap it up because it's fun. <laughs> yep. No doubt. No doubt. The, um, some things as a test pilot that again, we kind of mentioned, uh, before this, you know, coming from the seed world, the special maybe air defenses, the harm high speed anti radiation missile. So a lot of acronyms here that, uh, was the bread and butter of the Block 50 mission, is the is the bread and butter of the Block 50 mission still today. But you had a couple tests, you know, doing the first data link harm shot. So mm -hmm. can you walk me through kind of the evolution of that? Because that's a big player today. And what does it mean for today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was one of the first uh, Block 50 tapes that we were, that we were testing. It, I think it was 50T1, actually, first one. And there were a lot of new things on there. Um, and... Arm targeting system had been developed uh, previous to that as as a separate project, and so I started flying those those uh, arm targeting system missions, and and they were a lot of work, a lot of work in a single seat aircraft. To be honest, you know, if you're you're having to cycle between uh, several displays, um, one of which, of course, is your arm targeting display as you're looking at the surface air missiles lighting you up, or emulators that light you up. <clears throat> as well as your air-to-air -air radar, radar warning receiver, 
you know, navigation, flying the airplane, you know, it, it's very, very busy mission. And at the time I, I was coming up on 3000 hours in the Viper and I was very proficient. And I, I realized that this was a very, very busy mission, even for somebody who's very uh, proficient. So, um, knowing all that and knowing how complex the mission, the mission could be, um, we tried to, we tried to develop something that was relatively straightforward so we could just test the data link capability. And what they wanted to do was, was, uh, launch, launch a harm just based on their data link shot. And so what we did was we, we set up a, uh, uh, SA six emulator or China Lake it, on their range there, which is, you know, with easily within flying distance at Edwards and, um, my wingman, um, Evan Thomas had, uh, another block 50 F 16 with the harm targeting system on it. And I didn't have a harm targeting system. I just had the harm. And, uh, so what he would do is he'd be flying in, in an ellipse, uh, actually physically separated from me several miles. I couldn't even see him. Um, and he would, uh, ring in the threat and then he did link it to me and show up on my display. And, um, uh, we, and we did a rehearsal mission for it, but the day of the launch, uh, everything worked. I was cleared to fire and I, I let that beauty go a after having shot some air to air missiles. I was, I was expecting something similar to the air to air missile, but knowing how much bigger the harm missile is, um, I figured it'd be a bigger boom and it was, it, it was, it was really big. I mean, big, just like a big bomb coming off the airplane, you know, the airplane reacts when something that big comes off, but, uh, it, uh, flew up and actually in front of the airplane and straight up in front of my hood. And, uh, uh and then I flew through the, <clears throat> through the plume and that was, that was kind of interesting. ECS didn't really agree with that, but, uh, it was really neat watching the, uh, as far as I can see it, watching it fly up, up to uh, hit its target. And because it's flight test, we had video of, um, uh, separation from the airplane. We have video of the impact. <clears throat> So it was, uh, it was really neat to see it all come together and work well. Yeah. It's, you know, the constant iterations and the improvements and, and bringing technology to the forefront to help the fighter pilot out is huge. You know, when I left the F 16, um, 7.1 was the tape. There's new ATD attack display, which then through you get the radar picture, you get the harm targeting, uh, you can, so you can get ground threats as well as navigation on one screen. Still, it's resolution limited. I know they're working through a lot of things and upgrades that go into it. But there's so many sensors that you're cycling through. The day you were winning is when you had a bomb, a harm, and an air-to-air -air missile all in the air at the same time. But it's a lot. I mean, you're managing a lot of sensors to make all that happen. That it, is a lot. Yeah, but, you know, if you if you do that, then you're a champion. So every now and then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it, the... the it was, it was fun doing that and, and evaluating new capabilities that could help the warfighter, you know, do their job better. Um, the harm, harm targeting system is one of them. Uh, decoys were another one. And so, uh, June of 1996, Scott O'Grady got shot down, uh, near Bosnia. Scott was one of my students at Luke, as a matter of fact. So I, I knew Scott. <clears throat> uh, and so what, what we were tasked to do was take, take the, uh, decoys that were in development at the time. And basically deploy, get them fielded. <laughs> and even, even back then in the nineties, that was unheard of. You know, usually it's years and years of development, development, testing, operational testing, fielding plans, then fielding. And, uh, we all 
we all did that in a single digit number of weeks. And we are still testing, still testing the first decoys on the F-16. And soon enough, I found myself in Aviano giving the pilots academics on how the decoys work, how to, how to load them, how to fly with them. And so that was, that was very interesting, but it was very, very rewarding to be able to bring that capability to warfighters that quickly right from development. Yeah. War sometimes drives the necessity. And normally, um, I know that timeline was very compressed, but developmental tests, normally you'd be out there flying with it, finding the parameters, making sure it's not going to damage the aircraft or do something crazy. And then operational tests would take it and figure out how to employ it. But it sounds like the timeline there drove basically to, hey, this is how to operate. Maybe some, hey, this is what we figure out might work tactically and then give it to the unit for them to hone it or was, was developmental tests, I mean, operational tests involved in the process at all? They were involved. Uh, when we got the, when we got the order to accelerate, um, we did a, um, joint, uh, development operational test to, uh, to get there. And, um, so if I remember correctly, they came to Edwards, uh, where we had all the hardware and they, they flew some missions there and, and we had been flying it for a long time. So we were already, um, going through evolutions of, oh, this one breaks every time you do a 3G turn, it comes off and, you know, that type of thing. So a lot of that had already been done, but we are still in development. So it was, it was just a very accelerated uh, capability. Yeah, the, the story I have from that is like my last deployment with the targeting pod and actually being able to generate refine, uh, much more refined coordinates than we believe. They actually... They tried to knock us down to cat three. And we said, actually, in these parameters, we can get cat one and able to do a white paper on it. And weapons officer got it approved. And, you know, it, it showed that, hey, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, we actually can drop nail drivers and, and hit whatever you want. So, again, go, going to combat and doing the war thing can sometimes speed things up just a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So the rest uh, test there. Uh, you shared a video, which I'll, I'll, I'll share on the, the website, mm-hmm. but it's you in a flat spin in an F-16, which is something that's rather non-standard. Can you kind of talk me through that mission, what drove to it, and then mm-hmm. what was going through? It's a wild video. Again, I'll, I'll throw it up on the Afterburn podcast website, link it over to your, your page there, because it's, it's, it's wild. It is wild. It, 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 watching it now, showing it to people, it... it uh... It, it still uh, brings back the adrenaline for the moment. But <clears throat> the idea here was um, in flight tests, you never have en- enough time or money to test everything. And so what, what we do is we decide to take selected points in the envelope and test them. And uh, this way, if you, if you go test something that is at the, the, the worst part of the envelope and it clears, then you don't have to necessarily test so much in the middle of the envelope. And so we had a new digital flight control system, OFP, that we were asked to test. Um, and this is for the Block 40 and 50 aircraft. And um, it was kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, well, we're going to, uh, we don't have the money, so we're going we're gonna to fly with um, uh, a bunch of stores. And we think that we can clear these configurations for Cat 1 operations. And so it's actually that photo right there. Um, Targeting pod, Cinelink tank, uh, two AMRAMs on one wing, no AMRAMs on the other, uh, and two LAO 88s without bombs. That, that was the configuration that they wanted to clear for uh, Cat 1 operations. And um, 
So there's a team of us and we are kind of working up to that configuration. And so uh, one of the pilots who's flying at Dan Levin uh, was flying that configuration, but with a nav pod and I was chasing him uh, the week prior. And uh, I noticed he was starting to get into some, some um, post-stall gyration, some, some yaw movement after he departs. And, and really for the vast majority of F-16s, if you deep stall it, it's going to self-recover. Um, the, the nose is pretty heavy and it, it'll just fall down and self-recover. But, um, what we would do in flight test is we would, we would create the worst conditions. So we would, um, get an FCG by running all our fuel out of front, front tanks first. And, uh, we'd run the airplane out of airspeed typically by going 60 degrees nose up and just running it out. And even when you do that, you can get it back into controlled flight within one or two pitch rocks. You know, you're at 60 AOA. And within one or two of these pitch rocks, you're, you're back down and you're flying. It's, it's great. Um, so then wing goes up there and, you know, I see it's taking a couple pitch rocks, but he gets it back out. But we do see that the postal gyrations, yaw rate, uh, starting to develop. <clears throat> so, uh, so it's my turn in the chief, uh, the next week. And, you know, they said, look, you know, if you get some of these yaw rates, um, what we might try and do is if you pitch rock and nothing's happening, we may have you just hold full forward stick and um, try to dampen the dynamics, the oscillations. And in the video, you can hear my, my test conductor saying hold at some point. Um, if that doesn't happen, you get, you know, we start these at 35,000 feet and that gives you 10,000 feet to play. With. So you're trying to get back under control. You got 10,000 feet. You get to 25,000 feet, you got to pop the spin chute. That's our spin chute safety deploy altitude. Um, and that's no messing around. You got to do that. Um, that doesn't work because <laughs> we did have one time the spin chute didn't work. So she'd both like, okay, that doesn't work. Um, you don't want to punch out right away because if you're at a yaw rate and you punch out, camp is going to take your head off. Okay. So that's, that's kind of a known problem. So what you might want to do is you can jettison that satellite tank. And when you get down to the thicker air, maybe you can pitch rock a little bit more, but once you get down to 10,000 AGL, you got to punch out. So I'm thinking, okay, I got to do A, B, C, D, you know, if I, if I get into a problem. So, so there I am where you see the video starting. And what I'm doing is we had, we had these not intentional departure maneuvers, but we've had the, um, uh, they were maneuvers to see if the airplane could stay in controlled flight. And okay. so we're doing those and, um, it's just a left, left hard turn at 300 knots, you know? So you just turn left and max aft stick and if the airplane stays in controlled flight during all these type of maneuvers, then okay. It's probably a good cat one configuration is kind of the way it works out. That didn't happen. Right. So I, I do that hard turn and the airplane departs violently you know, a right slice across the sky and it goes into a sustained 75 degree per second spin. And of course I'm familiar with spins, right? I've done plenty of those in pilot training and actually in test pilot school, we had a whole high AOA segment where we would spin A37s, okay. you know, intentionally for a long time. So I, I knew I was in a spin, it's just, this is the unspinable F-16. So that was a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no joke. I would uh, slightly unsettling. Slightly. <laughs> it was a wild ride. I was holding onto the towel rack, uh, with my left hand 
because it was, it was the wildest ride I'd ever been in an airplane. And so test conductor says, okay, start pitch rocking. And, you know, a lot of my, my buddies as we're watching the video afterwards are like, well, pitch rock, what? You're going sideways. Why are you pitch rocking? And <laughs> the way the airplane was spinning, it kind of this flat 75 degree per second spin. We, we called it the pinwheel. But I tried. I did, I did three pitch rocks. He told me to hold and I held down and I did four more pitch rocks. And now I'm in seven full pitch rock cycles for an airplane that typically comes out after none or one pitch rock, right? Yeah. And I hit 25,000 feet. And that's when they called for the spin shoot. Unfortunately, the spin shoot worked. And I, I popped that beauty and, uh, and the airplane just hung there in the chute in control flight. And um, everything's good. And once they saw my yaw rates and pitch rates had stabilized and had me severed the chute, I come all the way. Engine worked fine. No compressor stalls or anything. Um, we didn't know what caused it. Um, they wanted to keep testing. <laughs> yeah, naturally. We, a few weeks later, uh, another one of my buddies, Bob Wilson, went up. Uh, slightly different configuration. He had harm targeting system and asymmetric amrams. Same thing. Exact same thing. Ended up in the pinwheel. Ended up popping the chute. Um, and so our, our program would shut down. And they said, yeah, go figure out what you're doing. And it took a while. Um, we had um, one of our, our test pilots uh, modeled it in MATLAB and figured out that it wasn't on uh, a yaw departure due to the asymmetric scores or anything like that. It was actually a moment from the engine. So the engine, the airplane's flying like this and uh, our engine's rotating like this, but it, it develops a moment, 90 degrees to your flight path. And that's what pulled me off in yaw, pulled us all off in yaw. And so all you had to do was pull the engine from mill power to idle power. And that, that moment greatly reduces. And once we did that, uh, the airplane was, easy to recover. So the moment, I mean, being in mill power produced that much of a moment at that speed configuration as you went to pull that made you depart? Yes. And they, you know, at the time the procedures were to be in mill power for the best anti-stall logic for the engine. And I, I can attest this engine didn't stall. Yeah. <laughs> Engine's G129, good. Uh, you could do just about anything with G129. It, it'll <laughs> just keep on plugging through. It's an amazing motor, but that, that's wild to me because not being a very smart guy, the fact that the the motor being in mill power was enough yeah. to throw you throw you in a departure. That's what it was. Pretty amazing stuff. You know, I joked about. I think it was Cinco. He was one of the first test pilots I had on this. Um, I got some test pilot buddies. One who you know, anytime something came up with the dash two. In fact, there's listening. We got a massive manual with all the possible configurations, all the stores. And the limits change in the F-16. I mean, it, and it's not, it's pilot induced for the most part. There's some stops you can do it, but it's, in my mind, it's really complicated. And there's lots of notes below that most, I would say most pilots ignore, not ignore or don't pay attention to where mm -hmm. the rules change as you drop or shoot things because mm -hmm. the aerodynamics change, the weight changes, CG changes. And I can test like, being in a block 50 squadron, I, if you went around the day, I don't, if you asked what, when the jets nine G capable, um, in a clean configuration with a HTS pod, you would get a hundred different answers because everyone uses that spaghetti chart and they're like, ah, below 6,500 pounds, below 6,900 pounds. Everyone has something different. So I was like, if we can't get that right, and 
when you start slinging AMRAMs off of the jet, then no one. But again, it's it's a moot point if you're slinging AMRAMs as far as that, you know? Yeah, it is. And, and it's very complex. And, and yeah, there's probably some overgenes, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, what's an asymmetric overg? <laughs> overgenes aren't as much of a concern as, you know, uh, you've got a, a, a set of stores that if you do enough maneuvering, you're going to work control flight. And if you do a low altitude, then, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time to get out because you won't be able to recover the control plane. So those are the, the warnings and cautions that end up in the dashboard after something like what I went through with the spin shoot. That's how they get there. That's why they're there. And uh, it's not always obvious to, to the average F-16 pilot who's, who's flying the jet going, you know, <clears throat> it says I'm cat three here, but eh, I'm just going to go to cat one and take my chip chances. All right. Yeah, that... Yeah, I mean, again, like you said, over G, not so much the concern. It's when you depart, uh, mm. and do you have enough time to recover? Sure. Uh, I can't imagine spending an F sixteen. <laughs> Just that seems super uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. Yeah, did uh, that modeling? I imagine that's how you determined that if you ejected in that uh, spin there, it would not work out well with the canopy. Or is that done on a physical test? I know it wasn't with a pilot, but is there a way to test that? Or how do you how do you determine that's a high threat region? That that was uh, known from <clears throat> from way back in the F sixteen. Even in the A models, when I was operational, they they said if you end up in any kind of yaw rate, okay. you know, don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, I imagine it was wind tunnel modeling. But I, you know, we we already knew that was kind of a fact by the time we were doing this testing. I know you had uh, mentioned too, and, and bio were kind of going back and forth there, but a couple engine failures while at TPS. Can you talk me through that? Cause again, being in a single engine plane, when you lose your motor, uh, it's a significant emotional event. Uh, yes, actually it was the same week as the spin shoot. So <laughs> that was, week. uh, yeah, that was interesting. So the first one, I, again, I'm in a small tail block 10, with uh, Al Lorman, who's actually the chief test pilot in Lockheed Martin, Fort Worth now. And we're doing an IP upgrade for Al. And so it was, uh, it was just a high LA fan mission. So we're, we're doing our first maneuver. We're going 60 degrees uphill, running it out of airspeed so we can get into a deep stall. And uh, just as the airplane's stalling, the compressor stalled on, on the engine. And so you hear the talking and throttle, moving the throttle, nothing's happening. It's, it's done, right? So we got some stub idle RPM at like 50%. So uh, <clears throat> pitch rock, get the airplane flying again. And then uh, we, we walk through the air start, you know, shut the engine off, turn it back on. You know, you got to make sure the EPU's running. You want the JFS going, you know, all that stuff, making sure you have electrical flight controls. And, and it, was, it was pretty much a non-event because, you know, Al's pretty pretty experienced guy. We came low and we landed, you know, hey, um, um, maintenance, might want to take a look at that. <laughs> maintenance signed off on said, nothing wrong with the plane. You guys were just doing high away, AOA. Well, it never actually happens. Almost never. Yeah. Um, so we were suspect three days later, same airplane, me in the back, back seat again. Now it's a Japanese test pilot. His very first F-16 flight ever. Um, Perfect. so they'd come over for uh, a week or two of, of, uh, test, test familiarization flights, uh, for their, their airplane that they're developing. And, um, we put a centerline tank on so we could get more 
you know, more stuff done, right? Okay, so same plane, same thing, same thing happened, right? 60 degrees nose high, compressor stalled, right? And I'm like, okay, I got it. I take the airplane, I pitch rockets, get us back into controlled flight, level off as we're gliding towards the lake bed at Edwards. I'm like, okay, we're gonna have to do an air start here. So is JFS on? And he says, yeah, but I, his English wasn't that great. So I don't know if the JFS was really on. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see from the back seat. So I'm just like, okay, I asked him a couple of times as we're following with satellite tanker, you're falling faster towards ground. Okay. Is the Ipu on? Yes. Okay. Really? Is the Ipu really on? Well, yes. Okay. Well, leap of faith there. Let's shut the throttle off because you know, he has to do that. So I talk him through that, restart it. And just about the time we were about to start our, our flame out landing, we got the engine going again. So we land both, both those flights are IFBs. They ended up finding the air data computer was faulty. In the, really? In that yeah. And, uh, then a few days later I had my spin shoot. So there's my, and, and when it turns out when you pop the spin shoot, Edward sets an in-flight emergency. So is it, it was the engine that's an in-flight emergency. So <laughs> I came back after the spin shoot and, uh, my, my, uh, buddy of flight safety comes up to the plane and goes, we want to take some leave. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's you. <laughs> Three IFEs in a week, maybe it's time for you to take some leap bus. And rather significant ones, you know, at that. <laughs> that was, uh, it was memorable. Yeah, Absolutely. I bet. Landing on the dry lake bed in the Viper, I'm, I mean, you got nothing but runway. Is it any, anything different that uh, landing on a concrete runway? I mean, to me, it just unprepared surface. I know it's prepared, but it just seems wild. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple things. And we landed uh, plenty in test pilot school in the T-38, no big deal. You just say, hey, I'm going to land on Lake Bed Runway 34, right? And they go, okay, fine, clear to land. You don't have, you have, um, your peripherals are very different because you have this enormous lake bed out of each side. And the runway is really wide because it's, it's made that way for the space shuttle or was made from the yeah. space shuttle. And so uh, when the runway is really wide, human factors, you tend to flare high. So you had to fight that, that tendency. In the Viper, uh, kind of the same issue. You want to make sure you didn't flare high, but the thing was with the Viper, because of the intake, uh, we couldn't taxi off the runway. So the, the procedures were, if you land on the lake bed, you bring it to a stop, you shut it down and, uh, you don't taxi, they'll tow it off. Yeah. So I was that, wondering just with, I mean, I imagine like sand, dirt and stuff like that has got to be going down that intake and not, not good for the engine. Yeah. Just <laughs> not, not good. And that's what I've heard. Um, F 35 wise right now, I know there's a couple engine issues, same issue, two different causes. Uh, but one of which, you know, some of them have been in the desert, you know, you're sucking down sand. I imagine that's turning into molten glass or whatever, and just doing some damage back there in the motor. Not, not a good thing for, uh, <laughs> any kind of engine. Exactly. Uh, obviously a lot that happened there, uh, being a test pilot, uh, and I know you probably got a few more stories to share, but I wanted to say thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Truly fascinating stuff. Um, and it's incredible work because just the day, you know, I'm, I know that what you're working on in the nineties and probably early two thousands that was showing up and being utilized, been developing the tactics for what's going out there and doing the day, which is pretty cool. It is. It, it's, it was really, really uh, worthwhile to be part of a team that was developing all this capability for the warfighter and the future of the F-16. And 
even back then we knew the F-16 would be around for a while, but back then the, a while was 2025. Yeah. <laughs> now it's a little further down the road, but, uh, it, it's, it's an amazing airplane. And, and from, you know, talking to guys and I've listened to all your podcasts and you have some amazing pilots you've interviewed. It, it's really great to see the airplane is still very capable. Yeah. It's an awesome plane. You know, who are the guys and gals who, you know, put that together and then funded it and made it happen, become a reality. Yeah, it's it's incredible. So, absolutely. Uh, yeah, fond of it, sir. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rain. Really appreciate your time. Hey, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I enjoyed talking to Cranky. If you're looking for additional content, again, swing over to the AfterburnPodcast.com. You can check out his spin video there. And if you're looking to support the podcast, don't forget to leave a rating or review over iTunes or check out Patreon.com/backslash/TheAfterburnPodcast. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.